Hi, this is Carl Held. I appeared in Star Trek, The Return of the Archons back in 1965, and I'm still around. And I'm going to be here for a few minutes uh, for this episode of Trek Untold. I hope you enjoy it. Hello and welcome back to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. In the TNG episode, The First Duty, there's a great Captain Picard quote that goes something like this. The first duty of every Starfleet officer is to the truth, whether it's scientific truth or historical truth or personal truth. One of the biggest reasons I wanted to make this podcast initially was to help preserve history and pursue that historical truth that the captain spoke of. Just to relate this to a personal story, in 2015, I began filming my great-uncle Hank Vergona for the span of two years, documenting the struggles of an underappreciated 87-year-old artist living and working in New York City. I filmed him working on artwork, I filmed him traveling around the city doing what he does every day, and I even filmed him during some of his lowest lows inside a hospital and other places, as he battled cancer and all sorts of other personal illnesses and health problems. It also served as a way for me to learn more about my uncle and what his story was, en route to making a feature-length documentary about him called Nothing Changes, Art for Hank's Sake. Hank passed away before the movie was available to the public, but he was able to enjoy the news of it being in 14 film festivals and winning some awards. The reason I bring up my movie is because it made me start to think about other people who weren't having their stories told or heard as much. The sad truth is, so many working artists in particular never get any recognition until after they pass away, and that includes actors. So one of my goals with Trek Untold has been to speak with as many living actors from the original Star Trek series as possible, since so few of those character actors have had much of a spotlight put on them outside of convention appearances, let alone telling their stories to the world in a more accessible way outside of panels at these cons. Today, we have the pleasure of chatting with Carl Held, who turned 88 in 2019 and is a few months away from 89. Now, you Star Trek fans may know him better as Christopher Held, which was the name he was credited with when he appeared on the original series episode, The Return of the Archons. He's had a few different names, and we're going to cover that story in detail later on. Carl was an actor with the qualities of a leading man, which turned out to be a bit of a detriment when it came time to work with William Shatner on Star Trek, an actor who he was familiar with from roughly a decade prior. In fact, it was ultimately Shatner who led him towards his wife, Sarah Marshall, who also appeared in Star Trek and passed away in 2014. Carl has had an interesting career in Hollywood and in the theater, and has even rubbed elbows on stage with Patrick Stewart before he was a Starfleet captain. He's an actor with a great history and a lot of really intriguing stories and good memories, and I'm very happy to be able to share some of those stories with you. Before we begin this episode, I'd like to remind you to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Trek Untold, all one word, no spaces. If you want to check out some of our Trek Untold merchandise, you can also do that on our Teespring store, which you can find on teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold, where we've got shirts, hoodies, mugs, stickers, tote bags, and all sorts of other things available to proudly display how much you like this podcast. If you're having trouble finding the link, just check us out again on social media, and you'll see us posting about it from time to time there as well. You can also support our show by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold. If you're already following us or offering us your support, thank you for your help. Most of all, if you can't support us financially, 
please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to the show. This helps more people find out about the show and helps spread awareness of Trek Untold. I'd also like to make a quick shout out to our friends at Triple Fiction Productions, who make some great 3D printed Star Trek inspired products for toys and people, but you'll hear more about them a little bit later on. Now, without further ado, let's beam up this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. Affirmative. Initiating program. Welcome back to Trek Untold. Now, join me on the other side of the line. We've got a gentleman who uh, is essentially uh, almost like a neighbor in some ways, because we're both New York guys. Uh, and this is a gentleman who has been in so many countless things, uh, theater, TV, film, all of the things. So uh, today joining us, we've got Mr. Carl Held with us. Carl, how's it going today? It's pretty good. You know, we're into a couple of months of uh, quarantine here where I live. I live in a, it's a retirement home with independent living. Uh, a lot of old people. Uh, I refer to it as the final departure lounge, ah. <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, is fine for me and a couple of other people, but there a few of them don't have a sense of humor. But anyway, uh, things are going pretty well, actually, pretty well. Yeah, all things considered, these are crazy times. I mean, who knew we'd be living through a plague right now? But, you know, we're at least I'm glad to hear you're doing all right. Yes, thank you. Thank you. And how about you? I'm doing all right. You know, I'm, I'm here in New York also, uh, so I'm actually in Queens, New York, and I was actually going to ask you, in fact, uh, where did you grow up originally? Uh, originally, well, I was born in Jersey City, New Jersey, and uh, but the early years, we, I grew up in Manhattan and Jersey City, and then by the time I got to be oh, 13, we moved out to a real tiny village uh, out in the middle of New Jersey. It was a summer cottage that my family had. And it became our permanent home. And, uh, and, that, and then I suddenly became, instead of a city kid, I was a real rural uh, hick. <laughs> we were out in the sticks. I'm telling you, you know, Matthew, we didn't even have running water at the time uh, or uh, an indoor bathroom or electricity. Oh, wow, yeah. So I, yeah, I mean, it was like living in the 19th century. I mean, it was fun in the summertime when we were, you know, vacationing, that kind of thing. It was a little different uh, when you were living there permanently, you know, in the wintertime. So, but uh, by the time I was a junior in high school, we got electricity and uh, running water and so forth. And that was it was a mercy. <laughs> uh, so my great uncle Hank, he actually was born uh, in 1929 on the on Black Friday, on the day of the stock market collapse. And so he grew up in New York City in Brooklyn Whoa. during the Great Depression. And you yourself were also a child during that time. Uh, what do you remember about growing up during the Depression? We knew that a lot of people were unemployed. My parents were not. <clears throat> my father, <clears throat> he had a job. He was working in uh, uh, for years in a place, uh, he commuted from New Jersey to New York. Uh, they made box lunches for one of the big factories there or something. He worked in a delicatessen. And uh, we also, at some point, we moved from New York. We moved from New York to New Jersey. And my parents took on a building as superintendent. And uh, so they had that as a job. And my dad then went into his own business, started painting, contracting. And uh, he always managed to get through. We got through the Depression and never really wanted to or anything. We weren't rich by any means. You know, there was always a little worry about money. and But there was always food on the table. And I remember birthdays, Christmases, holidays. You know, we had company over. We had presents. We, had, we did fine. They just, with both people working, they, they muddled through. 
but it was blue collar stuff, you know, mm, it yeah. wasn't uh, fa- fancy work or anything like that. So when you were growing up, what was some of your favorite movies to you? And, and you know, you mentioned the one that kind of got you interested in becoming an actor, but what were some of your favorite movies to watch growing up that had an influence on you? Okay, well, there was, certainly was Casablanca. Uh, I got, uh, musicals hit me. There was, I remember, Yankee Doodle Dandy with James Cagney. And um, there, some of the actors really got to me. Uh, we, the kids, we really enjoyed them. There was Cagney, there was Bogart, Joseph Cotton, of all things. My mother liked him. And I, uh, I'm i trying to think of some of the movies. Errol Flynn. Uh, things like uh, Robin Hood, fabulous movie, uh, fabulous, the Robin Hood movie. And Gregory Peck, who also went to the Neighborhood Playhouse in New York, where I went to, some of his movies would just knock out and uh, stayed with me for forever and ever. Yeah, like, very strong I, leading man. I could definitely see that influence in your work. Yeah. Yeah, these 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 are a great guy. Captain Horatio Hornblower, adventure stories. Oh God, just wonderful stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, we used to go to the movies all the time. You know, when I was a kid, it was like fifteen cents. You went <laughs> on a Saturday, you could see two double feature, a newsreel, uh, a serial, and a cartoon. <laughs> Your parents got rid of you for a whole afternoon, and you had another <laughs> nickel, another nickel, and you could get you know. Uh, black dots or some kind of gumdrops or chewies or something like that. You were, you were shot down for the whole after Saturday afternoon. Yeah. We, I well, wish we, we still like that today. Yeah. It's not like that. Oh God, everything's changed so much, but you know, it changes and there's nothing you can do about it. So you either go with it or you live a life of resentment. <laughs> 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 so when did you first discover acting was something that you wanted to do? Was this something that you were into as a kid? I was one of those kids that um, in grammar school, I'd always wind up in a class play. Uh, and then, you know, when I got into high school, it was the same thing. I'd be in whatever was going on on stage. I got into debating. Uh, we did uh, talent shows. I'd be the MC. Uh, I'd be in the class play. And but that was it, you know, and I was in the senior play. Uh, I remember that. And the um, it was interesting that we had a, a guy who had graduated from our high school. This is a place called Somerville, New Jersey. And he worked as a dresser for an actor named Ray Bolger, if you remember him mm, from yep. The Wizard of Oz. And Ray was on in a play called Where's Charlie on Broadway. And our senior class, the cast, was invited by his dresser who graduated from our high school. We went over to see the play and we saw Ray Walter and he got us an interview with him after the play. We went to a matinee, so we saw him between matinee and evening. And that was kind of interesting. <laughs> you know, I was standing on stage with this actor I'd just seen and I'm looking out at the empty theater and because I'd been on stage in an amateur way, and I got a rush, you know, and I, and it, it never left me, even though I did not go into acting for at least another 10 years, hmm. almost 10 years, because uh, I was academic, I was academically uh, inclined and I, I got a scholarship to an engineering school. I won the math prize in high school and, you know, I was going to be an engineer. Huh. So what was it that ultimately then led you to doing this professionally? I'll make it short. <laughs> okay. 
I, uh, I wound up, uh, I had to leave school at some point because I still needed to work to get some money together. We had the, the engineering school. You went the first two years, including the summer, you had no break. And I needed that summer to gather some money together. So I opted out for a year. I told them, and they said, great, you come back and you'll get, it was a half scholarship. I had, you, you'll get the scholarship again. Uh, you'll just pick up a year later and uh, go to the summer camp. And then so what I said, fine. Unfortunately, the Korean War was on, and now I was not exempt because I was not in college. Mm. And so they came after me, and they were going to get me. So I beat the draft by enlisting. I figured I'd get it out of the way. And, uh, and that was it. And I went into the Army, and I figured I'd avoid Korea. And uh, in the end, I did not avoid Korea. Mm-hmm. I managed to get over there. I was sent over to Japan with a few other guys. And on a typographical era, seven of us wound up in Korea. Hmm. I spent a year there and transferred out finally when I had enough credits and got into the original destination that we were all going to go to in Japan, which was a chemical laboratory. And I worked there for a year. And, you know, we had chemical stuff. Go- I was in the chemical corps and uh, we assayed napalm. Uh, war gases in case we had to use them uh, and all that sort of thing. And while there, uh, my time was running out and I was going to go back to call, back to the States. And here I am, I'm in science, you know, in the army. This is all science stuff I'm doing. And I'm, uh, I'm not thinking acting or theater or anything. But I had about four buddies, three, four buddies who had, were chemists, but they had Bachelor of Arts degrees. And we'd go out, you know, evenings, uh, whatnot, and drinking, carousing, dancing, and, and hanging around with some of the girls and so forth. But their conversations were not just science. They were talking um, philosophy, literature, uh, all kinds of stuff. And... I, and I, I realized, you know, there's a whole other world here. And I, and I liked that stuff. I did well in my English courses and writing and uh, anything like that. And, uh, non-science, I did well in those subjects, too. And my interest lay in all these other areas as well. And I thought, I'm going to miss a lot being just an engineer. And, uh, but I did, what am I going to do? What would I do with my life? You know, I'm going to go back to school now. And one night, you you remember, have you ever seen the old movie called Random Harvest? No, I don't know that one. Okay, it's a black and white. It has a famous uh, British actor, Ronald Coleman. And uh, the actress was Greer Garson. And it was, a, it was based on a book by James Hilton, I think it was. And uh, I remember having seen it uh, here in the States or when I was a kid, you know. And now I was watching it again over there. And we get to the last scene, and this is where a guy is recovering his, his memory from amnesia. And I knew what the scene was all about. And I watched Ronald Coleman act out this scene, and it was so effective. And I looked at it, and I said, I can do that. I know how to do that. And that asked, the next day I, I asked one of the guys, I said, where did you go to school? And he said, I went to Penn State. I said, they have a drama department there. The he said, oh, yeah, really good one. I said, no kidding. And the bug was in my mind. 
Huh. And then the, the fact that I was on, I'd been on stage all through school and whatnot. And I thought, why can't I, I can study all the other things that I want and major in theater and get out of there and get into showbiz. Hmm. And if it doesn't, it doesn't work. I can go back to the university. And I did. So anyway, I, indeed, I wrote a letter to Penn state. They said, yes, you're on. They trans, I got my transcript sent over. I ha- didn't have to take any more math or science. It was all, all the requirements were done and I was majoring in, uh, in, in theater and, and, and just to protect myself, I went ahead and got a master's as well. Uh, and then went out into, uh, into theater. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because as I look at your resume, I see that early in your career, first few years, uh, you played a lot of military roles, in fact. So it must be kind of interesting to be basically having actually served and then having to go into a studio and pretend to be someone like that. Oh, yeah. No, it was no trouble at all. Yeah, I remember because <laughs> I was on a contract at Warner's at one point and they had several World War II uh, series going on and whatnot. And I played Americans, I played Germans, but military, no trouble whatsoever. You know, I knew the stuff inside out. And it was really easy. Um, the, the other thing is I didn't go straight. To, it was an interesting thing. When I was at Purdue University working on my master's, I was a teaching assistant there as well. And I was gonna, it was going to take two years, which was a drag. But at my first Christmas there, one of my professors said, what are you doing over Christmas? I said, why? He said, because I have a friend in Hollywood and I'd like you to meet him. And he said, if you're willing, you, you can travel out there and you can stay with him and he can introduce you to people in Hollywood and you can kind of uh, sort out what's going on out there. He said, because you belong out there in the profession, not here in the world, the, the academic world. And I said, you're kidding. He said, no, no, no. And he arranged it. And uh, I think that was the, uh, the, the Christmas of 56. Yeah, I came out, went out to Hollywood for two weeks and stayed with this writer, Stuart Stern, uh, who wrote a, a movie, which I'm sure you've heard of, Rebel Without a Cause. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, Stuart wrote that, among many other things. And he introduced me around to various people in Hollywood, and, I, and it was an agent got interested and so forth. And through all of that, he was, this guy was very good. He suggested that instead of uh, me plunging in to finish up, your college and go to the neighborhood playhouse in New York and just refine your acting with a, a real professional teacher, as opposed to, you know, the college instructors and all of that stuff. And I went back to Purdue and I talked to my major professor. I said, can I accelerate and get out of here? And he said, you'll have to take an extra course and we can fix one up for you. They did. And I got out of there in two semesters and one summer. And passed my did my thesis everything and headed off to the neighborhood playhouse and from there my career uh, in New York after about a year or so there um, I started handing my picture out you know I'd call places where they were looking for actors and I got a call in to report to on a theater it was a theater callback and that turned out to be my first job in 1958. Ah, that's right. No, I think I think it was also 1958. Maybe this was your first job where you worked on uh, the Broadway show, The World of Susie Wong. And that was with William Shatner, right? You, you bet. So I knew Bill Shatner from way back then. <clears throat> he had done one a significant movie, uh, The Brothers Karamazov. And uh, so this is, of course, well before Star Trek or anything else. And, and I also <clears throat> met Sarah Marshall 
it, who was in that play, she also was in Star Trek uh, in one of the episodes later on uh, called The Deadly Years. But I met Sarah in that play and um, we managed to put 55 years together. Now, I had heard that uh, your wife had actually, before she was with you, actually dated William Shatner a little bit. Was that true? Yes, that was true. Uh, it was on the road when we were trying out. It was up in Boston. And uh, I was just the understudy, you know, hanging out, doing whatever I was supposed to do. And I found out later that she was dating him And when we came back into town. But strangely enough, or ironically, uh, the understudy, which was me, uh, Sarah needed to rehearse lines very often. And Bill would be busy doing out there on stage, rehearsing, you know, being out there. And so the stage manager called me. He said, would you run lines with Sarah Marshall? I said, sure. Sarah and I got to know each other through that. So as I say, ironically, the understudy took over. And (laughs) Shatner got the elbow and uh, that was it. And uh, Sarah and I took a while because I was separated from my wife, my first wife, although not divorced. But Sarah and I got together. And in the next 55 years, it was Sarah and me. And that must be really great to also have someone who understands the business as well to be with that way. Yeah. Yeah, it was wonderful, Sarah. And, you know, we were in it together. It, it was a great life. Um, and between the two of us, whoever had the job was the royalty in the house. You could do anything <laughs> you wanted. You could be as moody as you wanted, you know, because you're life. working on a part. You were working on a role, you know, so you were either king or queen, you know. And then uh, in between times, you know, it's just, we just shared life together. And uh, when it, it was just great. It was a great marriage. Just really fabulous. Now, one of your earliest television roles was on Perry Mason. And you had a recurring part as David Gideon uh, alongside Raymond Burr in that show for eight episodes. Uh, I wanted to ask, what do you remember about working with Raymond Burr? And what did you learn from him? Well, he had a great sense of humor. He loved to tease. <laughs> and uh, we got along very well. And actually, there were, uh, you say, eight episodes. I actually did, I guessed it as one before I did those eight. And then they, I went back to New York and they tracked me down and wanted to write me in. They told me, and I had to come out here. And I did a, another show, not as David Gideon. I don't know, what was it? It might have been, I might have had the name. Then. I think you, uh, there was one uh, where you played a character named Bruce Nesbitt. That was the very first one, I think. Yeah. Uh, with Otto Kruger and Gloria Talbot. Yeah, but there was one before that. It was and it, there were supposed to be two, but we only did did one, which sort of was to uh, act. Uh, uh, it was like a test run to see if they really wanted to sign me, and I did that, and that was successful. And then they signed me, and then we started in on the season doing the the regular stuff as David as David Gideon. Um, and what was nice about that was Ray was because I hadn't done that much in front of the camera. I had done a couple of things. Um, so I had, I had a lot of things to learn about camera technique, for example, you know, so you, you don't overact as a, cause you have to project and push a little bit when you're on stage, you know, and you have a big theater. Uh, whatnot. So the film acting is somewhat different, much more subtle. And I think you have to be much more, truthful and real otherwise the camera will get you will catch you if you're when you're faking um 
um, anyway, so I was learning the tricks of the trade, you know, there, and uh, everybody was helpful. They were really nice. And that, that's actually where I got my film training, was on Perry Mason. Oh, that's a great place to get an education like that. You bet. And the wonderful thing was Barbara Hale was one of the girls. She was like, I wouldn't say almost a pinup girl, you know, for when uh, I was in, when I was growing up in, in the army, uh, we had pinup girls, you know, we, we some from the guys even wrote to Hollywood and Barbara Hale was one of them, you know, and uh, <laughs> suddenly I'm working with her, you know, it seems so weird. <laughs> <laughs> But well, everything seemed weird, you know. It was like even when I was first in uh, in the world of Susie Wong and going with Sarah. Sarah was established on Broadway. I mean, she'd already been nominated for Tony Awards, and you know, and uh, you know, they were off. People were playwrights were writing parts for her. I mean, she was very successful on Broadway, and very much in the social life of uh, theatrical New York. So when I started to date her. She would take me to these parties and I would meet all these incredibly famous people. And, you know, I get home and I get on the phone and call my parents and say, Hey Ma, hey Pa, you don't believe who I met, you know, and I've been to parties <laughs> where it was jaw dropping. It's just ah, I couldn't believe it. And I can drop names till this day, you know, I, I cannot believe how that happened. Oh, please drop them. Please drop those names. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are people like Gore Vidal, you know, there in uh, Truman Capote, Ethel Merman, of course, the, 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 some of those are not, not known to the young, younger people today, but I mean, these were big time stars and knockouts, you know, back back in those days. And I was just hobnobbing with them like, I, I, like all my life. It was crazy. So before we jump into Star Trek, I do want to ask you about one other sci-fi show that you worked on before you got over there. And uh, you did an episode of The Outer Limits in 1963 called The Man Who Was Never Born. Yeah. And that episode starred Martin Landau and Shirley Knight, yeah. uh, whose daughter, yeah. Caitlin Hopkins, we actually talked to uh, many weeks back. Uh, oh, so I want to ask what you remember about filming that show. I got to tell you, that's on my mind because many people have... It's, uh, mentioned that because it was a, a very well received episode of Outer Limits, and I just read uh, you know Shirley Knight's bit you know uh, a few weeks back, and I didn't have any scenes with Shirley. My scenes were with Martin, and <clears throat> what I remember of it, I, I mean today, why it really comes to mind. This is ironic because a character I played is an astronaut who returns to Earth. And he finds nobody left except a mutant human being who's all gnarly and weird looking. And what has happened in his absence, humanity is wiped out by a microbe. Like today we have a microbe running around the planet. Mm, yep. And that's what the story was about. And the story was about having my character go back in time and we change, we change the events of what actually happened. And, uh, and working with Marty was great. He's a wonderful guy, uh, nice actor, very giving. You know, he didn't have a big ego or anything like that. Um, uh, and then we, we actually worked together again in the space 1999 in England when I lived over there. And Marty and Barbara came over to do uh, the series there in England. And I got to do one of those episodes. Trek Untold will return momentarily. 
Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props or a toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog, whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. If you find yourself listening to your favorite podcast and wondering what microphone they use or how they do their editing, or if you watch a YouTube video and you wonder, what camera is that? Or going one step further, if you're watching Twitch and you're wondering how your favorite Twitch streamer built their rig and if you can do the same, then Toys and Tech of the Trade is for you. Toys and Tech of the Trade is an interview series where we sit down with content creators, entrepreneurs, and discuss the gadgets and gear that they use to create their content and run their businesses. We use toys in a broad sense, meaning the stuff that just puts a smile on your face, whether it's action figures to something a little bit more complex like musical instruments, cars. You'd be surprised what people consider their toys. Toys and Tech of the Trade can be found on all major podcast providers, including iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and of course, Spotify. Feel free to visit us at RageWorksNetwork.com to check us out. We now return to Trek Untold. So, Carl, it's now 1967, and you have finally made it to Star Trek. So uh, can you tell us first how you got cast on the show, and had you at that point seen any of Star Trek or heard about it, since that was the first season? It was. I saw maybe one or two, and uh, for some reason, uh, I wasn't tuning in every, you know, every week on it for whatever reason. Uh, I don't know. It's not that I didn't like the show or anything like that, uh, but I just, it's just, just how it worked out. Uh, the moment I knew I was going into uh, to audition for the part, you know, I had a chance to watch an episode, and I thought, oh, well, you know, Bill, Bill Shatner, okay, you know, so I know Bill, and uh, I see, I get the tone of the show, and a uh, nice, really nice, and I went in to see uh, a casting person and director, and guess who? Gene Roddenberry. Hmm. He was there helping to cast. And Gene was delightful. I walked in and sat down, and I guess evidently he had seen something I'd done or whatnot. And I looked okay. For, and we just chatted. You know, he didn't have me read or audition or anything. He just said to everybody else, he says, I'm happy with Carl. Anybody else? No one disagreed with him. And I said, thank you very much. <laughs> and all my went. <laughs> Only to realize and this that later on, after the show was filmed and all done, that actually Gene had made a mistake in hiring me. Uh, what was that for? That is because, look, I understudied Bill on Broadway. 
I get, and that that's an example. We're the same type. You know, we're we're leading men. Uh, we compete with each other. We're both light-haired and blue-eyed. No, builds brown eyes. But anyway, you know, it's we're the same type. And uh, what you do usually when you have your leading man, you have uh, as a running character in the series, you don't bring in uh, other actors who are co- quote competition for him in terms of type. It's just uh, it's just usually not done. Uh, and to uh, just add to the fact that you know how much of competition I am, when I was in England, I did a commercial for Heineken's beer over there with Victor Borga, of all people, doing the voiceover. And they were doing a takeoff on Star Trek. I got cast as Captain Kirk. Of course. (laughs) So there you are. So what happens in the show is, one, there is a whole side story of my character who stays on the planet, falls in love with a girl, and this stays, and whatnot. And then there's a lovely scene at the end where I'm on the planet, and then he's the bills, uh, you know, up in the spaceship with everybody else and the scenes between the two of us, the camera's only on him. They never cut to me. They dropped the whole story <laughs> that dropped the whole love story. Any scenes that I had with Bill Shatner, I'm out of except in the crowd. I noticed that when I was watching that, like oftentimes he'd be standing in front of you and almost basically blocking your body from the camera. So you'd maybe oh, see a little of your head stick out. All kinds of stuff. Right. And, and that's what it was for. You know, uh, I don't know how much of it was uh, up to Bill or whatnot, but you know, we've heard stories about, Bill, you know, whatever. And, but I understand it. And uh, they really, it, it was a mistake in casting me because it is competition for, for Bill. Mm. And, and also in real life, <laughs> there was the competition. <laughs> I, I got the girl. I mean, come on. You know, I, come I think he won. I won. You know, as far as I'm concerned, he lost. I won. <laughs> <laughs> so that episode, Return of the Archons, was filmed on the 40 Acre Studio, which is a very historic studio. They filmed Gone with the Wind there, some parts of King Kong. What yeah. was it like for you to be on that set? It's, you know, it's, uh, you get a feeling. It's a... Uh, it's a magical feeling. Uh, how to describe it? I've had it before. I had it before in my life. Um, it happened to me in England. I went. I'll give you an example. It's, it was the same feeling as what I'm just going to tell you about. We were filming on location on uh, on uh, Cyprus for BBC, and we were using a. An, uh, an old Greek theater that had been excavated like 1951. Um, it was a couple of thousand years old. And there were the stone seats all around and the stage. Um, and we got there. There were uh, there a school bus with a bunch of kids there. And the kids were seated in uh, where the audience is. And they were evidently having a class of performing. And you, one little kid would run down and stage and turn around and recite a poem or something. And everybody would applaud deeply. Beautiful sight. The kids leave. It's all so charming. And then we get to go on the stage. And we're filming on the actual stage where 2,000 years earlier, Greek actors stood. And were wow. performing. And we're performing. And the view was right across this plain with a couple of trees in the distance and the Mediterranean. That was one directional, or most of it you know, about two, 270 degrees. And the rest, you, look, you turned around and you were looking at the audience on the stage and the sky 
and these thousands of years of history we're standing on, it was like magic. And we suddenly felt wow. we're part of uh, this whole tradition. Theater began around campfires and storytelling and so forth, and it grew and grew and grew, and then it got onto stages. And this is one of the early stages. And we're part of it. And suddenly we felt part of something. And so then you got to film an episode of a sci-fi show in the 60s on that kind of similar hallowed ground that Desilu production bought. Yeah. So it was the same thing out there where, you know, gone with the wind, you know, holy mackerel. Yeah. And it's crazy. I got to work with Vivian Lee a couple of years later. <laughs> things, oh, wow. Huh. That was amazing. Oh, that's a legend. But yeah, it was it was wonderful. It, it, you know, I tell you, Matthew, it was the same thing when I walked into Warner Brothers uh, for the first time. I was under contract there in uh, in '63. Uh, my favorite movie, the one I'd seen as a child, it still is. It's on the top of my list. Is Casablanca with Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall and Claude Rains. Yep, yep. It's a beautiful black and white movie. Wonderful, great success, and a lot of history behind it. I wa- I got onto the stage where they filmed. It. <laughs> and I got out to my knees and I said, Oh, wow. What can I tell you? I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm nostalgic and, uh, you know, a romantic, let's put it that way. <laughs> well, it's great to hear that. So on the episode, of course, you are beamed down with the away team. You're there with DeForest Kelly. You're, you're there pretty much with the core crew. You're there with DeForest Kelly. You're there with Leonard Nimoy and, of course, William Shatner. What do you remember about working with these guys, uh, especially on this, again, mostly outdoor set? Uh, must have been a real interesting shoot. Yeah, uh, I, I didn't know any of the other people, you know, so they were all new to me. And I didn't get to know Leonard very much. He was very, he was polite, kind, you know, we chatted a little bit. But, you know, I, I didn't, as a guest, you don't like to bother the the stars and the people, the running characters, you know, because they have their, their family circle and whatnot. And a lot of times they get snob, they can be snobbish and, you know, ter- it kind of freeze you out. But they weren't like that. They were kind and welcome. But I still didn't want to intrude on anything. But one nice thing happened with DeForest, with D, um, I was on the phone and he happened to be passing by and I was talking to Sarah, telling her that, we had two cars. One was in the shop and I didn't know she was going to have to come and get me. And he overheard that. And he said, where do you live? And I said, uh, in the Valley. He said, so right. I said, where? He said, in Sino. He says, I go right by there. I'll take you home. <laughs> Just like that. So you got to ride home from Dr. McCoy. Yeah. So we, you know, I barely knew, we barely knew each other. I think we'd sat by each other, sat side by side in makeup, you know, that morning. So we got to chat a little bit, you know, and, and that was about it. But he just heard this, little snatch of a conversation and realized I needed a ride home. And there he was offering me. Wasn't that nice? Yeah, that's really great. And we did. So we, so we drove me home and then so we're chatting all actors talk, you know, and, uh, he, he was lucky because he had now a running part on a show, which is, you know, it's wonderful to have that. You don't have to worry about work. Uh, when you're freelancing and you finish a job, the nightmare is you say, well, that's it. I'll never work again. You know, my wife and I used to joke about that all the time. Of course, you do work again, but, you know, the fear is that you won't. Um, and then you have the actor's nightmare. So he had his, I had mine. We talked about them. You know, you, you wind up in the theater and you get out on stage and then you forget which play it is. Or you have no clothes on. Of course, that didn't, ma- doesn't, didn't matter later on, but... <laughs> <laughs> 
so, but you know, we swapped all our personal stuff, and it was really nice. It was, it's, we were frankly buddies by the time he dropped me off at home. It's just remarkable how well we did get get on, and how much we got to know each other in that that very short time. You know, so I, I really had a soft spot in my heart for D from then on. You know, he was great. And it's funny that you talk about, again, someone being in a running series, because I believe you were there on one of the days when the cast found out that they got picked up for another run of episodes. That's that right. That's right. As a matter of fact, and, and that involved me because uh, he was wor- he he figured, you know, this might this is probably it. The series runs out and nobody knew. And later on, when they announced it, it was outdoors. We were on the, on the 40. And I remember everything stopped. And they announced it over a loudspeaker. And there was D, you know, about 50 yards away somewhere. And we were waving at each other, like, oh, yay, thumbs up. He's got his permanent job still. Isn't that great? <laughs> you know, yeah, oh, yeah, super. They were so happy. So I also read, though, one of the parts of the episode that was not so great was there's a scene where all the villagers that are in the town, they kind of start rioting, they go crazy, and they're throwing things and breaking stuff. And I believe you got hit in the head with a rock during that scene. Is that right? That is, I believe that's correct, yes. <laughs> I mean, I, I want to ask what you remember from it, but you got hit in the head with a rock, so I don't know what you can remember from that. But uh, is there anything you do remember from that scene? Well, what I do remember is um, I felt it. It didn't hurt because it was fake. You know, it was very light. And I don't know, somebody said that I reacted to it and then kept on going. Um, <laughs> and and that, that's about it. Because when you, you're supposed to, this, that was my job in the scene to get the heck out of there. And even though I felt <laughs> the thing hit me, it didn't hurt or anything like that. And uh, so I just kept going. It worked out all right. It was okay. So as we mentioned, your wife, Sarah Marshall, was also in an episode uh, called The Deadly Years, where she played a scientist named Janet Wallace, and yeah. conveniently, she happened to be a fling of Captain Kirk, and uh, <laughs> which must have been just weird to begin Isn't with, that, but uh, I heard yeah, you have to also visit the set with Captain her, right? Kirk, because in real life, there, it was the same thing, you know? And exactly. I, visit, <laughs> I visited the set, too. <laughs> and uh, um, Bill and I got along okay, I'll put it that way. And I was welcome on the set, but it was nice, when, you know, I didn't get too involved with Bill. Mm. That's all, and uh, and she and and Sarah and Bill got along just fine. There's no anything about the, the history or whatever. They're just quite professional and got on with it, and they and they worked well together. So the episode of Star Trek that you were in was directed by Joseph Pevney. He directed uh, about yep. a dozen or more episodes of the show, and he yep. did many many other shows like Monsters, Bonanza, Fantasy Island. What do you remember about working with him and his direction? Joe, I, re- I worked for Joe twice, actually, because he directed an FBI later on that I was in. And he was very efficient, very nice to his actors. Uh, I guess the, I think sometimes he felt a little pressure. He might have been a little short with an actor. Well, I remember there was one actress who really gave him a problem, and she just couldn't hack it, and it was, it was tough. And he... he he was a little curt with her, but he wasn't. He wasn't mean. He was not mean. No, no, no. I don't mean it. Uh, he, was not, he was a nice human being, and he was good with actors. I liked him a lot, actually. Now, did you and your wife typically watch the shows that you were on after you were in them? Oh sure, oh sure. And I tended to watch the series. You know, then you know, I, I kept watching it, uh, and uh, I really enjoyed it. And they did it. Yeah, no, no, but. There were a lot of series that I never watched until 
one of us participated in them. You know, it's like something later on, I was at something called Falcon Crest. So it was a nighttime soap opera and it was very well received and all that stuff, but it wasn't my cup of tea or, or Sarah's. And we never watched it. And all of a sudden I got <laughs> on the show, you know, and, I, and then of course and I watched every week. That's kind of important I hear for a lot of actors is you need to kind of keep up with what you're doing or what you want to hopefully do. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like part of your due diligence to be respectful for the show that you're going to be in to understand what the show is about. Oh, yeah, exactly. You get, you know, where they're coming from and what their style is uh, and you can t- and how their fo- and how their cinematographer works. Because also you you become aware after a while as, as an actor of uh, angles that are bad for you or good for you, or you you look really good and others where you don't, depending on lighting and angle of camera and all that stuff. And you, you just look and see how the cinematographer is working, and you can have an idea of you know how you're going to come off, and maybe what you should do, should you adjust or what have you, because you you go in as a guest onto a show you adjust to them. <laughs> you don't ask them to adjust to you unless you're a huge star or something like that, which <laughs> I almost became, but never was. So I was always easy to get along with. I would accommodate them. When you watched the episode that you were in and when you watched the one that your wife was in also, uh, what did you guys think of each other's performances? I liked Sarah's work. Uh, I was always highly critical of my own, always thinking that it could be better somehow. Uh, but that was just, that's just a personal problem I've lived with all my life. You know, you feel that, oh, you know, I'm not quite as good. I'm not quite good enough and all that sort of thing. And that's just a character defect. And uh, I got to recognize that. But I liked Sarah's work very much. And uh, and she liked mine. And when it was, and if I had, if there was anything to criticize, she she would uh, she I would ask her to, and she could point out little things for me. And she was very helpful to me early in my career uh, in helping me avoid certain pitfalls that actors fall into. And I had a couple and I would fall into them. (laughs) (laughs) And so we would look for those. And, uh, but we were, we were kind to each other. If we had anything that was negative, there's still a kind way to say it. That's great. That's great to have someone like that to be able to give that kind of advice to you and that real valuable information. Yes, a real professional viewpoint. Absolutely. And and also the other thing was not just looking at the finished product. We would help each other in preparation, you know, with a scene things that we were going to do. I would cue her, we'd talk things over, and so she had her process of working, I had mine. But we used each other that way too to supplement our own approach. And uh, very often we gave each other uh, good ideas and so forth to make something, let's put it this way, unique. So it wouldn't be run-of-the-mill. It wouldn't be run-of-the-mill like just every actor, other actor would do it. If you can find something that makes it stand out just a little bit, make it a little bit different and still truthful and real, that's the mark of a good performance. Really good. That's, that's a great piece of advice. Is there any people listening who are actors or whatnot? That's one of the things you do for audition scenes. Because they could see hundreds of people or 50 people or 50 demo tapes or all of that stuff. And you do and you record your scene to send in. Figure out what everybody's going to do and do one thing for sure that's different just so you stand out mm. and you find a, a real a moment where you can really do it. And uh, there's always a moment in there somewhere. And uh, so many jobs I got and they said, oh, we remembered you did. Boom. And it was that one thing. 
and made it stand out from everybody else's scenes. That's an excellent piece of advice. Thank you. You're welcome. So if you're going for an acting job, remember that. <laughs> <laughs> so you have one other Star Trek uh, connection, if you will, and this is before uh, this gentleman got involved in the world of Star Trek, but I had read in the 70s you worked with Patrick Stewart. Is that right? Of course. That was in England. I got hired to be with the Royal Shakespeare Company of London when I was living in England, and I spent an entire year with them. And Patrick Stewart was part of the repertory company, along with Bob Hoskins, uh, Mia Farrow, uh, and various English actors, famous ones, Zoe Wanamaker, a whole bunch of people now. Uh, that's, that's a big group of powerful people right there to be with. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's great. This was 1976, and you realize how long ago that was? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I wasn't even born yet. Yeah. <laughs> Well, anyway, uh, it was a thrill, and it was wonderful. And Patrick, lovely man, lovely, lovely, lovely. We worked together um, in one play, The Iceman Cometh by Eugene O'Neill. And Bob mm-hmm. Hoskins was in that baby, too. And uh, we had a good time, good time. And bless his heart, uh, Patrick went on to really a great success. And I remember when a friend of mine was going to do uh, the show, when he was playing Picard, uh, and I said, say hello to Patrick for me. And she says, sure. And he did. He sent back a lovely message, and we got on the phone and chatted, even, you know, just uh, going over old times and whatnot. He was, was a dear, very nice man and talented. Of course. <laughs> and now he's a sir. I know so many sirs. You know, I feel like a loser. <laughs> <laughs> All of my friends are sir, you know, over there. <laughs> and some, when the young people here can say sir to me, I think, oh, God, you know, <laughs> they only knew. <laughs> <laughs> so beyond star trek you of course were in tons of other show you were in the girl from uncle the lotus eaters you mentioned space 1999 charlie's yeah. angels the jeffersons falcon crest uh there's a bunch of others but uh i think the one i want to ask about right now is your appearance on the incredible hulk because you were in an episode in the first season called terror in times square and <laughs> yeah, you were uh, an enforcer type character and you actually got to be in a scene with lou ferrigno while he was in the hulk makeup so what do you remember about being on the hulk I remember Robert Alda, who was Alan Alda's father. That's what I remember mostly, aside from Bill Bixby, you know. But Robert Alda was a very successful Broadway star. You know, he's, he starred in a musical called The Most Happy Fellow. Uh, and I was in awe of him. And I wondered why he hadn't become a huge star out in Hollywood. I don't know why. We never know why. Some do and some don't. But uh, that's what I remember mostly. Uh, he, he was very nice. And uh, Bill was swell. Bill Bixby loved him. With Lou, you know, I didn't have anything much to do with him uh, off the set or even on the set. We didn't have that much together. He was in costume and he looked frightening. There's no question about that. But <laughs> really, really, all I had to do was react to, oh, my God, this look. And that was easy to do. It was a, it, he motivated you very well. <laughs> Put it that way. <laughs> I would definitely run from that if I saw that coming towards me. Oh, gee, yeah, no, it was really scary. Yeah. So you were also in Diamonds Are Forever with Sean Connery. Uh, what do you remember about being in that movie? I heard you also weren't even credited for that role. I, I, was, I, th- I think I was in the credits. I'm not sure. Uh, well, just running into Sean, uh, you know, was was great because I remember when they, he was first cast as Bond, and we I was here in the states still, and we watched Doctor No, um, 
I thought, holy mackerel, here it is again. Uh, I'm going to be rubbing elbows with the the really big boys. And uh, I just had to be careful that when I come in to do like a little scene that I don't mess it up, that it's on the same level as everybody else's. Uh, and, and that's a problem for uh, actors who come in and do small parts. Uh, you, the, the producers want you to be on the same level as the people you're working with. And so you can't be intimidated by them, but uh, I'm impressed by them and and awe of them. But then it goes all aside and suddenly we're just equal actors working together, trying to get a scene done and make it work right. So I want to ask you about one other show as well. And this one's uh, because my mom is a big fan of Richard Dean Anderson. You were on two episodes of MacGyver. What do you remember about that? I, I, I have to be honest. Uh, I don't remember a great deal because... The parts weren't that great, um, but Dean Richard was wonderful. There again, you see, he could have been a snob, but I was just coming on to do, you know, a little guest spot. It wasn't even a big guest spot, you know, it was minor, although it was a couple of times. But it was always hello, good morning, how are you doing? Da 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 da. da. And he was chatty, and I appreciate that a lot to help, uh, you know, because when you're not doing a huge part, you know, you. Um, you know, ego is a little, uh, well, I was a little shy sometimes, but he made sure, he was, with his manner, uh, I loosened, I was loosened up and I just felt great and I appreciated that a lot. A lot of stars don't do that. It's kind of fun that you say you were shy, but meanwhile, a lot of your career, you're playing like security or, or soldiers or very authority type figures, I found. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I learned how to do that. <laughs> That's acting. <laughs> yeah, that's acting. That's true. That's true. So I, I do have one very important question I need to ask, and that yep. is your name, Mr. Held, because uh, you are Carl with a K. Sometimes you're Carl with a C. When you were in Star Trek, you were Christopher, and at one point you were Carl Bird. So you are an international no, man of I, mystery. I would, I, that Carl Bird, that's a missed thing. That I don't know how that got started. I was never Carl Bird. Uh, I didn't correct that, that today, at least. That's in Wikipedia somewhere and, or something, and I got or IMDb, and I wrote in and I tried to get that off because it's not true. I don't know who got that, uh, but my name, it, as it turns out, the way I spell it, Carl with a C, Carl Held. That's my entire name. That's what it was on my birth certificate. But somewhere along the way, um, where was it? Uh, I changed it to a K because. It was something about being German, um, and I, because my family was German background. My father was German, for, you know, he, he immigrated from uh, Europe to Germany, from Germany to here. And my mother uh, was German-Austrian, and she met my dad here in the 20s. So I'm first generation. And, uh, oh, okay. Um, so I grew up kind of a little biculturally, uh, and then the enemy was part of my family over there during World mm. War II and all that, and all during the Nazi era. But my parents were hardly anything like that. As a matter of fact, my dad was interesting. He uh, he was in the German Merchant Marine, and in 1926 he had his first trip to America, and he spent like a week on shore leave in Manhattan. And he didn't couldn't speak any English or anything. He was about 19 or something like that. And they'd been around, not around the world, but around Europe a bit. And, but he really dug New York. And uh, he hung out in this German-Jewish delicatessen on the west side 
they could speak German, of course, you know, so they told him where to go, what to do and whatnot. And it came time to leave. And uh, the the ship was blowing its horn. All the sailors get back on board. And they said to him, and they said, uh, Carl, why are you going back to Germany? You know, you got inflation over there. You got this. You got he says, yeah, well, what am I going to do here? He said, I don't have any papers. I don't have a job. I don't have... They said, we can give you a job. He said, I don't have a place to stay. He says, we have a room upstairs. And the next thing you know, huh. he, didn't, he didn't go back. So he was here illegally. But so he learned the, the delicatessen trade, and as he was learning English, he also learned Yiddish. Ah. So I grew up in a household where we got all this Nazi stuff going on, and my family is anything but anti-Semitic. I mean, my God, he speaks Yiddish, you know. And, <laughs> you know, so and I felt very proud as a, even first-generation American that talk about anti-Semitic, you must be joking, you know. Uh, and when I got. Uh, some Germanic stuff thrown my way that, you know, in terms of being German, German background, I thought, well, up yours. You know, that's the reverse uh, bigotry, a reverse prejudice. I'm American, for God's sake. And I said, but if that's how you're going to be, I'll be German. And I stuck a K on my name. And that was my <laughs> way of protesting. <laughs> if you don't like a German name, there's one, you know. And, uh, like Carl Malden, Carl was German, and but nobody gave him any crap, you know. But uh, <laughs> they did me for some reason. Then also, you know, I played a lot of German parts very well, of course, because with the accent and all that, you know. But uh, in fact, I had a friend who was an actress, Bobo Lewis. Um, it's interesting. We're, we're playing cards. Bridge and I played a lot of bridge. And Boba said to me one night, and we've been friends for years. And Boba was Jewish, and she was very anti-German uh, kind of thing. I mean, she wouldn't even ride in a Volkswagen uh, because it was German-made, and uh, it was fine by me, you know. But she said to me one day, she said, "She said, you know, you're the only German that I've ever liked." Hmm. I said, "Excuse, <laughs> excuse me." And I took her into, I said, come with me. And I took her into my library and I had a globe there and I spun it around and I stopped at Germany and I, and I pointed, I said, look there on the globe in, in the, Germany and see if you can find my hometown. It's called Jersey City. <laughs> and she said, oh my God, I'm sorry. Bingo. <laughs> but see, that sort of stuff went on out here. That was my pushback. And then eventually an agent said to me, you know, your name is too damn German. And I said, oh, all right. So let's change it to Christopher. We found that name and that's why it went to Christopher. Then after about a year, I went back and I played some more German parts. I said, it's not changing anything. So I'm going back to call. So I went back to Carl. <laughs> then I went to England, and then after 12 years, I came back here, and then my agent said, your name looks awfully German. I thought, oh, not again. She said, why don't we change it to a C? It's a lot softer. I said, okay. <laughs> oh, that is a heck of a journey for a name. So, you know, I just wanted to be Carl Held actor. Boom, why, why can't you just leave it alone? So today, nobody gives a rap about that sort of thing anymore, I don't think. I mean, people have all yeah. kinds of crazy names, their own names, and that's fine. But back then, it was, you know, if you, you just didn't want to have an ethnic name. I guess that's what it was. So, Mr. Held, I'm gonna, thank you for finally solving that mystery for us. <laughs> but uh, I wanted to ask... What was your favorite experience filming any TV show that you've ever done? 
Well, my overall best ex- aside from the locations I went to, you know, and uh, well, okay, there was a movie I did um, in 1974. It was called Embassy. It is. I don't think it's ever shown here. It's sh- it's shown only in Europe. I. Don't know. It's available. I, I must. Uh, it was with uh, Richard Roundtree, and then some very famous actors from the old school, uh, and Ray Milland, um, Broderick, yeah, Max von Sydow, and that also. Broderick Crawford, Chuck Connors, Richard Roundtree. I said, and Max von Sydow, the Swedish actor. And yeah, I love me. his work. And me and Sarah Marshall. Sarah was in it as well. And we filmed it in the Lebanon in Beirut. And we were there for three months at the finest hotel right next to the beach. Uh, It was fabulous. And I didn't have to work every day. When I didn't, I I got to go into, uh, I met a couple of people. I went into Syria. I traveled into Damascus, all over there. Started to learn about the Arab world and America's uh, uh, interests over there and how well we are received. Uh, I, I say that with a tongue in cheek, somewhat ironic. Um, yeah. But it was a great, it was a wonderful experience in uh, hanging out in a completely different culture. Uh, I'd been used to European cultures, but this was now Mid East and a gateway to the Mid East. It was somewhat different. Uh, educational, interesting, and I had a lot of fun on the movie. I had a great part, and we had a great cast. Um, it was just overall lovely. And it was probably because of the location, you know, that, yeah, that's what did it, yeah. But the actual uh, acting, acting and role, uh, you know, my favorite role and playing was Falcon Crest. And that, because that went on for three years, and, uh, and I was doing great there, and that was just great. I loved it. Man, you you had a nice long run at Falcon Crest as well. I mean, what do you remember about that show? I know it was years on there, but you know, what's what's your favorite memory from being on Falcon Crest? Well, it started when I went to audition, and the, the, they said it has to have a slight Nordic or German accent or something. And they said, "Can you do that?" I said, "Can I do that?" You know, you know, I got <laughs> but I decided to do a real subtle one, and I went in to audition and. As I started, the, the producer read with me, and, uh, and it was just him. And I think he had his assistant. And we didn't get on, but about two minutes or something, he says, okay, that's, he said, that's fine. Thank you very much. And I left. I went downstairs, and I got on the phone. We didn't have cell phones back there. And I got onto the pay phone, and I called my agent. And, they, and I said, I just had, a, I think, a very good addition. She said, yes, it was really good. You're leaving for Napa Valley on Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> that was like five minutes later. You're going, oh my God. And I was scheduled. I was signed up for two episodes. Two. And after the second episode, they handed me a script and said, you're in this one, too. And I wound up doing like 55 episodes. Wow. Wasn't that neat? (laughs) Is there like one day of shooting in particular that kind of stands out in your mind as like a really great day that you had? Well, I had a day shooting with Kim Novak. Uh, they used to, they got all kinds of stars from the old movies, you know, that would appear on the show. And I had several scenes with Kim. So we got to chat and laugh and scratch about the old days and all kinds of stuff. That was a lot of fun. That was really nice. Because, because these are people I never would have met otherwise, you know? Yeah. 
And they just just a parade of stars from old movies that came on to that show. It was great for them. As a matter of fact, they, that's, that's one of the things that happened on Perry Mason back then. A lot of very good actors who hadn't been, uh, or some from older movies, they were guest stars. They come on there and you get to meet them. That's yeah, that's, that's really a great part about being a real working actor in Hollywood. And you know, I want to ask, since there are a lot of aspiring actors listening today, what is the best piece of advice you ever got from another actor that you've continued to use throughout your career? Oh, boy, what a question, Matthew. You know, you should ask me last week and give me time to think this over. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. I think it was one, uh, the best lesson I learned, and this is in terms of confidence, is that I was, even though I had friends who went up for the same part on occasion, and we competed with each other, so to speak. I never competed with another actor or with any other actors. Remember that you're only in competition with yourself. Just, yeah, as, in, just as in life, you want to be the best Joe you can be. I want to be the best Carl person that I can be. I want to be the best Carl acting this part that I can be. That's my competition. And I focus on that and not the other stuff. And when the focus is there, you know, it it, it, it shovels away a lot of detritus and garbage that you don't need to think about. And things that might make you worried and distract you. That's a good piece of advice right there. So, okay, Mr. Well, Held. Yeah, yes, <laughs> What is your favorite thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? The favorite part is the fact that I, I've... I never expected there to be any kind of fame or interest coming out of that part, and especially after they hacked it all to pieces and there wasn't much of it left. But because the show took off and became such a legendary, incredible success, you know, for generation after generation, without my having to lift a finger, I've become famous and important to a lot of fans. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely delightful. I had no idea anything like that was ever going to happen. I mean, I went to to uh, Las Vegas about three years ago on the 50th anniversary. I'd never been to a signing or something. My oh, gosh, a number of fans and how effusive and congrat congratulatory they were. How nice and, and wonderful people. I was excited and delighted. It's like I had suddenly reached stardom. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm kind of curious. Have you ever run into William Shatner at any of these conventions? Uh, no. Bill stays apart from the rest of us. <laughs> Let's put it that ah. way. Okay. All right. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. We'll say no more about that. <laughs> yeah, what, but that's true. He does. He doesn't mix it up with us. I mean, but I ran to you know Gary Lockwood and all the all the boys and all. They, we're all pals, you know, and all that. That's great. In fact, I knew Gary from way back anyway, but. Uh, but yeah, but that's that's the deal. And it's nice to see a lot of uh, other actors there whom I never would have run into. That's another thing about being in, in the Star Trek, uh, with Star Trek, having the conventions and going to the sign-ins. I get to see old buddies and, and new girlfriends, uh, that girl, but gal pals, you know, uh, and people that I, I really have lost touch with and haven't seen for ages. You know, like I run into Joan Collins or into Tippy Hedren or, into, you know, and it's just, it's just great. It's just, it's a lot of fun. Bring back a lot of memories 
I told you I was nostalgic and romantic, so it feeds that aspect of my my desires. Uh, that's amazing. So, Carl, what do you attribute your longevity and vitality to? I have to tell you, what they, you know, Bill and I are virtually the same age. You know, he just turned, uh, Bill probably just turned 89, I'll be 89, you know, very shortly. And uh, I never realized how fast it, I would get this old. I want everyone mm. to know that it goes by faster and faster. And uh, it's, so enjoy it and make the most of it while you can. And I'm still doing that. I'm having a great time day by day. I'm still learning new things. I study things. Uh, I sculpt. I have sculpted. I've published articles. I've published tons of stories. Uh, I keep active. I work out. And uh, I work out. So it means I, I weigh just about the same as I did uh, in college. Which and I was not fat. <laughs> I'm in good shape. That's the key to staying young at heart, though, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes, keep doing new things. Challenge your brain with new things. I mean, I could do crossword puzzles blindfolded, so they they're no longer a challenge. So I take on new things, new language, new stuff. Uh, my tricks are try it. Do so many things differently. If you brush your teeth right-handed, try brushing left-handed. It makes your brain work differently. If you tie your shoelaces, try tying the knot the other way. It makes your brain work differently. You open up new pathways in the brain. All kinds of tricks to keep your brain going and your body. Just to keep uh, it I up. I love that, yeah. So I think that's all I got for you today. But, um, yeah, the, yeah, Mr. Hell, I mean, this was a really great conversation. I thank you for all the advice you gave our listeners and for chatting with me today. Uh, really enlightening stuff. And I really appreciate your time. Well, you're quite welcome. I enjoy myself too, and I hope it's a, I hope it's all successful and people do enjoy it. Thanks again, Matthew. I appreciate your checking me, checking with me and and having me participate. Uh, thank you so much, and thanks again for sharing your history and all of your knowledge today. Really, really great lessons uh, today. So yeah, again, thank you so much, uh, and you have a good day. Thank you again. Thanks a lot. Take care. So that was our chat with Carl Held, aka Christopher Held, aka. Not Carl Bird, a.k.a. Lieutenant Lindstrom. And man, I'm really glad we got to the bottom of this whole name thing. More so, it feels good to talk with someone of Carl's age. Depending on how old you are, you may not have someone in your life like Carl. And I hope that if you don't, it brought up some good memories for you, friends, or family who may no longer be with you. And for the listeners who do have some older relatives around, why not give them a call later and ask them some questions about growing up, or how they met their significant other, or really just anything. I'm sure they'll be happy to hear from you. Return of the Archons was a script that had, in a roundabout way, been in development for some time before it was actually made. Gene Roddenberry initially came up with the concept in the summer of 1964, originally titling it The Perfect World. The intent for this episode was to be the potential pilot for Star Trek, alongside with two other candidates called The Women and The Cage. Of course, we all know which one NBC ultimately ran with, but the concept was still there and eventually developed further by a writer named Boris Sobelman. Boris was also known for his work on the Alfred Hitchcock Hour, The Man from Uncle, Dr. Kildare, and other television shows. Boris sadly passed away in 1971 at age 61, only a few years removed from when this episode first aired. Return of the Archons is also of note because it's the first time we ever hear about the prime directive of Starfleet, an important tenet of Star Trek that has remained to this day. And as for what those Archons are exactly, well, it turns out that it was the name of a club that Gene Roddenberry was a member of during his school days. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Trek Untold. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this show. And if you can, leave a review and rating. We would appreciate it very much if you did. You can also follow us on social media. Just look for Trek Untold on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you there. 
And of course, we'd like to hear your thoughts about this week's episode. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can check out patreon.com slash trekuntold to learn how you can keep our ship operating at full power. And you can also check out some of our merchandise at teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold. Once again, thank you to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions, and shout out to Scott Ray for setting up this interview. If you'd like to book this week's guest for a convention appearance or an autograph signing event, email Scott at scottray67 at aol.com. This has been Trek Untold. I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and until next time, fortune favors the bold.